After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So today is President's Day. Um... Back in the hoary times when I was young, um, it, we had uh, Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday as separate holidays. Now they've, for efficiency, they've combined them somehow. But it was actually much more charming to have Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday because you got to actually reflect on those particular presidents and leaders. Um, and one of the stories that I most love about George Washington as a president after he became president was that there were a lot of people after his t time in the presidency who wanted him to become king. I don't know if you know that in the history, but there was a lot of pressure. Basically, it was part of everybody's psyche at the time that, what do you do? Democracy was quite new and unfamiliar, and, well, we, we got freedom from the, you know, king of England. We need a new king. You're a magnificent guy. You've been president. Why don't you just finish it and become the king? And so the best thing that George Washington did, one of his greatest acts, anyway, as president, was refuse to become king and instead say, no, this is a new experiment here, um, in, in this particular form, a lot of it actually came from the Iroquois nation, as many of you know, the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, uh, and he retired to Mount Vernon, and he said, elect the next president. So thank you, George Washington. And then Lincoln's birthday. I mean, if, yes, they're all melded together. Um, when I go to Washington, D.C., periodically... I also try to go to the memorials there. They just moved me a lot to go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and touch that long black wall and the names on it. And to go into um, the Lincoln Memorial, which um, always brings me to tears. Um, there above that huge statue of Lincoln seated, it says, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union. The memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. And it's built as a 
a mirror or model of a Greek temple. Um, and you feel that you're entering a sacred place, a holy place. And on one side, engraved, is the Gettysburg Address that you all had to learn, at least in my generation, you know, by heart. Um, and on the other side is the text inscribed in marble uh, from some portions of it from his second inaugural address, which he gave not many months before he was assassinated um, and when the Civil War was still raging and not completed. And it has these words. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. You know, when I think about Syria and Lebanon or, or Libya and um, Yemen and the various places where there's war, fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then finally the speech, the words end in this closing of reconciliation with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who have borne the battle, his widow and orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and among all nations. Um, really extraordinary words and extraordinary leadership. And I think about the national conversation that's happening now, Black Lives Matter on racism and on uh, diversity and so forth, um, and then go back to this, you know, 150 years ago, saying, if we suffer, if, if uh, the war continues until every drop of blood drawn with the lash is paid by another drawn by the sword. What an amazing thing to say, so, that, so we will do it. Um, there's a sense of uh, justice in his words and a kind of integrity in the midst of uh, unbearable suffering um, that is um, real leadership. And, and um, when we celebrate President's Day, as it is now, President's Day sales in the stores and things like that, right? Um, there really is a reason for it if we let ourselves go back to this part of who we are as, as a people on this particular part of the earth. And it resonates like the teachings of the Buddha because, of course, you know, the dilemma that of racism and uh, the suffering that Lincoln spoke of is not over. And the Buddha said, 
um, that the Dharma or the teachings of awakening and compassion welcome all. Um, all who, who are interested in awakening, um, the Dharma gates are open for you. Whatever your race, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your ability, whatever you look like, whatever you, your birth, as the Buddha says, not by birth, nor caste, nor race, nor creed, none of those things makes a human being noble but solely the nobility of heart. And for those who wish to join this path of awakening and nobility, please come and be part of this. Let us change the way human beings live and let's change the world. And so many Buddhist texts begin with the word, O nobly born, which is a reminder to you of who you really are. It's a beautiful poem by William Stafford, which has a line says, well, maybe if you were exchanged in the cradle and no one told you what your parentage is and you sit quietly and wonder, maybe you're a queen. Maybe you're a king. And so this quality of nobility um, that Lincoln carried and Washington did in refusing to be the king, and so forth, um, is really the quality of wise leadership. And I'm talking about it because it's President's Day, but also because you're all leaders. You might be leader in your family or in your community or with your friends, but we all have at times the role of leadership. It's part of what's given to us in a human incarnation. And what's possible in leadership um, is the ability to bring what we train in meditation practice, in loving awareness, in compassion, in the balance of mindfulness, in the generosity of spirit to those around you. So last uh, spring when I went to the first White House Buddhist gathering, Buddhist leadership gathering, and was able to give kind of the summary talk to White House staff and folks from the State Department and so forth. Um, I noted, which I've talked about here Monday night some months ago, um, that the Buddha um, in his time was actually quite um, conversant with and spent time with the leadership around him. And there are all these texts and stories of his teachings to ministers and kings and princes and wealthy courtesans and wealthy, you know, um, movers and shakers of his time. Um, And one of the most beautiful of the text in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he says, if a nation or if a society comes together in harmony, listens to one another in harmony and departs in harmony, if they treat all the members of the society with respect, if they um, protect those who are vulnerable, children, women, those who are older, those who are sick, if they um, tend the teachings of their ancestors and elders that carry wisdom, and if they tend the natural environment around them, then they can be expected to prosper and not decline. All these teachings on wise leadership. And there's a whole 
text again um, in which the Buddha speaks about the nobility of human of our human capacity to lead those around us in a wise way. And then because he was a list maker, he liked to make lists. So there's a zillion Buddhist lists, the Eightfold Path and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Twelve Nidana Chain and the 52 Mental Factors and the Four Noble Truths and, you know, the Five Spiritual Faculties and the Three Characteristics, blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Um, but he talks about leadership in times of change. Anybody notice <laughs> what times we're living in? There was the, the great chemist Lavoisier who said, nothing lasts, nothing, sorry, nothing is lost, nothing is created, everything is transformed. This is his essence of chemical equations for any of you that remember your chemistry in college or whatever it is, that you take things and they get combined, moved, changed around, everything is transformed. Um, and this is the reality of our human incarnation, that everything is being transformed, including our own thoughts and feelings and body and mind and the culture and the, the global environment that we live in. So how do we then navigate in this change? And wise leadership, again, in this particular list, the Buddha says, starts with generosity, a generous heart, a generous leader, imagine that. Then it includes uprightness, which is a old, more Victorian word for integrity. That wise leadership, your work as a leader, wherever you are, asks for generosity and integrity. And that also asks for um, non-harming. That part of that integrity is to not cause harm to yourself or others. Steadiness. Sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? That there's something noble about being able to put your own needs and desires in a greater context to say what really matters to me is that I offer this to the whole. Flexibility, the Buddha says, being flexible and not rigid. Patience. Inclusive. The, the wise leader doesn't lead, but actually gathers around them others, like Lincoln did, you know, the, the, uh, that beautiful book about, the, uh, what is it called, The Cabinet of Rivals or something like that, the title of it, in which Lincoln took the people who were his political adversaries and put them all into his cabinet. He said, I need you to help me figure out what to do in the Civil War time, and we can't be fighting one another. So it was an inclusive kind of leadership. And then the vision and, and trust that goes with that vision. And the beautiful thing is that, which I said at the White House as well, is not that these are good ideals or good ideas. They are. So, you know, so what? The Greeks had them and, you know, the African kings had them and the Maya, whoever it is around the world, we can find them. Um, the important thing is that they can be trained, that they can be awakened in us, which is really why we do these remarkable practices of compassion and mindfulness and equanimity. And each one of these actually leads to a practice. So generosity can be a practice. One of my practices with generosity 
is that, which I've done for you know, 25, 30 years, is that if I have a generous thought to give something or to serve or to do something for someone, I do it. Because, you know, you have that nice thought, oh, yeah, I should do this, or wouldn't that be great to give that or whatever? And then immediately comes, you know, all those little people that live inside that say, oh, you know, that's going to be a lot of trouble, or you might need that, or that's too much, or, you know, you've got other things to do. Do you know those, those voices? Do you have them? Yes, you do. I know you do. I know you. Yeah, because we're human. But the practice, it's a really beautiful one, is when that generous impulse arises... I just say, okay, I'll do it. And there might be a few exceptions, you know, and I don't judge myself, but mostly for the last 30 years when that's come, I've done it, and I never regret it. And so the beautiful thing is not just that this nobility and dignity is something that's, you know, an ideal, but it's something that you can practice and you can deepen and you can learn. Now, it turns out since we're not only talking about President's Day, but Valentine's Day, that love, too, can be practiced and awakened. And, of course, the modern neuroscience research and so forth um, on social and emotional learning for young children and empathy training, some of the stuff that's done at Yale or the Kessel um, Consortium for uh, um, social and emotional learning and so forth... Um, all kinds of studies that show kids three, four, five, six years old who have naturally generous impulses as well as naturally um, violent impulses. <laughs> Don't hit her with a block. Use your words, right? Except that we really want to tell that to, like, Bashar al-Assad and Putin and stuff. The kindergartners get it. Can't we get those, you know, older people to figure this out? But anyway, it turns out that there is a, a, a natural empathy in kids. You know, from, and, and, and the Yale studies show that infants who are you know, pre-verbal, a, less than a year old, by watching their eyes tracking and you know, their responses and things, um, they get upset if there's a crying child that something is missing or taken away. If, if someone drops something, they, they want to help that person pick it up. There is a, an innate connection between us as human beings. I mean, there you were in somebody's belly, after all. Let's get real about this. Isn't that weird? You lived in somebody's belly. You know, oh, I'm independent. Yeah, right. Give me a break. He lived in someone else's body. It's really wild. So these things, empathy, love, compassion, also can be trained and awakened. And they're not ideals. They are really... Um, the wedding of something magnificent like Lincoln's words to something that's really personal and intimate. So Thich Nhat Hanh wrote this beautiful book on love. You know, and you read his books and um, he's managed somehow to take, in some, some cases, very complicated and rather profound Dharma teachings and simplify them so that you can't deny them. They're just so beautiful. So, all right, I get this new Thich Nhat Hanh book. I want to read it partly because I love his teaching, partly because I want to steal stories or whatever I can from it, you know, little professional 
grab there. But anyway, and um, so I'm reading, and it's, okay, it's going to be about love and compassion and sympathetic joy and so forth. And I get through the first chapter on love, and it's the Brahma Viharas, the Buddhist teachings on, you know, the awakened heart. And it's fine. It's beautiful. And then I turn the page to to chapter two, and it begins... She was just 19 years old when I saw her first walk down the stairs in that temple in Chu Lai, you know, Vietnam. And this book of teachings on love, it turns out, were teachings that Thich Nhat Hanh gave uh, to his community in Plum Village some years ago. He decided to give this set of teachings. And I can picture everybody sitting there hearing Thich Nhat Hanh speak about the Brahma Viharas and the awakened heart and the Buddha's teachings on love and so forth. And then he pauses and he says, she was just 19 when I saw her walk down the stairs. And all of a sudden, it was in France, too. Everybody sits up, ooh, now this is something I really want to hear. (laughs) And the book has a love story in it in every other chapter. Not the love that was consummated, because he was a monk and she was a nun. And in this case, they behaved. You know, not always true, but in their case, they were... But it talks about... um, his own personal love for this young... He was young, too, and what that meant to him. Um, And there's something so beautiful because it weds what we really long for, which is that wedding of the personal, to, to really love another or others, and at the same time to have that love open us to something that's greater. And again, I'm somehow, even as I say these words, I'm still back with those words of Abraham Lincoln. Um, I can't not because they're so compelling. And there's some way in his leadership that it was really a leadership of love. There was a nobility and a dignity to it. And he was, he was somehow tuned into a kind of love that in the midst of the fire of the Civil War uh, still carried some deeper uh, capacity for human beings to, to live in a different way. And so here's Thich Nhat Hanh writing about it, and you can't not, you know, want to turn the page. The scent of love, Rumi talks about love dogs, their tails start wagging as soon as a little love is in the room, you know. And I'm so happy because at age 70, in these last years since I was divorced, um, I am in a, in a relationship with Trudy Goodman, who's a colleague and teacher who I've known for years and years and years. Um, and I got to fall in love again, you know, in my late 60s. And it's been totally wonderful. Um, and um, we realized that at 70, we were, we're both, we're five weeks apart in age, so we had our 70th birthday. And we said, we don't know how much time we have. Of course, nobody does, actually. But, you know, as you t- get into your 70s, it becomes, how do you say, more real and apparent. <laughs> and um, so, you know, let's, let's really do it. Let's live it up. And it's beautiful to see that at this age, I've actually learned some things about love. And we really, there's a great affection and so much more accepting and appreciative of one another. And it's not that there can't be some moments of, you know, those moments of a little irritation or something. For example... Um, she likes me. She likes me to drive, uh, which I'm happy to. I like driving. I was a cab driver for in Boston for a few years when I was in graduate school. I have bad driving habits, but I can get you know 
through the traffic, whatever. Um, and she, if I drive, she's supposed to navigate. She's not a very good navigator. <laughs> it's just, you know. And then she tries to use Siri, but her Siri app, because she speaks fluent French, is in French. It's a Frenchman's voice. It's very charming voice. Go turn this direction, go there. I can't even understand what the poor guy is saying, but she finds it charming, right? So we're kind of lost periodically. And I could get annoyed. In fact, I do. Um, and then I look over and I say, what is the hurry? You're in this car with this beautiful woman that you love. I mean, what better thing to do than be together and have a good time, you know? And so there's something about having lived through these years of learning to be in relationship that the love is so much bigger than the stuff that happens. We don't actually have very much stuff between us, Trudy and I. Um, but there's something so sweet. Even the stuff becomes interesting in that way. It's like, oh, yeah, look at that. That's very human, and there we are. <laughs> Loving awareness, which is what you train when you sit with your own pains and pleasures of your body, or, you know, with the emotions of sadness or grief or trauma or loss or longing or, you know, or love and joy and bliss and so forth. The loving awareness is a kind of radical intimacy. The Zen master Dogen said, to be enlightened is to become intimate with the world. And you become so close to your experience that you can somehow see into the heart of things, your own or the heart of another being. Um, and what you start to see is that you're not separate, that, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, we inter-are. You know, um, I was just part of a wedding ceremony that was led by a Hawaiian kahuna, Hawaiian um, native uh, healer and wise wise man. Um, and part of the wedding ceremony, he had the bride and the groom um, put their noses just next to each other and breathe together, breathe in and out. Um, prana, it is in Sanskrit, but I don't remember what the Hawaiian word is, he said. But, but um, it is just to let us know that we are really breathing together on this earth and that we link our breath in this way to remind us that we are really united and connected. It was a really beautiful moment in that, of having them put their noses next to each other and breathe for a while. Um, and of course, all the modern interpersonal neurobiology, all the science and so forth, and the mirror neurons and all that stuff. Yeah, the scientists have found out that we're connected. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Duh. Right. <laughs> We're wildly connected. We're connected so that when I was in India, you know, 30 years ago, more than that, traveling, and the person I was traveling with had this terrible dream about somebody dying in her family. And I said, no, oh, no, no, that's just part of meditation. You go through birth and death and all the things in you show themselves and that's natural. I was wrong, turned out. You know, ten days later, she got a telegram. Her brother had died, and he died. Then we looked, and the date was the same day that she had that vision. And he died in the way that she'd seen. And, and you've all heard those stories. How many people have 
had some experience like that of some kind where you notice you look around. Many, many. Do you know why you know these things? Because we really are connected. And, you know, we lose those channels some because our consciousness becomes much more tuned to the everyday, if you will. Um, but it is a reality. We are connected in consciousness. Just as we're connected in breath, you who are breathing here are breathing the air of her and him, you know. Oh, no, God, all the cooties and germs and whatever. Too late, baby. We're in it together, you know. We are interbreathing and we're interliving. And we also interlive with the plants and, of course, with the earth around us that needs a little more attention in this way. So if mindfulness and loving awareness is really a practice of intimacy, it means to be present for yourself or another without trying to fix what's there. But to listen deeply, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, to connect, to feel that connection, to keep your heart open, if you will, with that other person or yourself or those people. And then from that place to respond. Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, who's the son of Chogyam Trumpa and taught here one time Monday night and I've gotten to know a little bit. So he wrote a book. He's a, he's a great horseman. That's sort of his um, uh, passion in this life. And, and he writes a story about taking his horse, Rocky, way up in the high mountains in Colorado on a trail at like 11,000 feet that was a re he was and Rocky's not a horse trail. Rocky's a rock a, 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 a trail horse. Excuse me. Um, uh, he's a horse that's used to galloping and so forth through the woods and in, kind of more in the lowlands. So he's not really used to mountain trails. But he took his horse Rocky with a couple of other people, um, and they were going on this very narrow trail um, and a steep drop off. It was steep above and then a thousand feet of scree down below and this narrow trail. And he said, we were just about to go on the narrow part of the trail. He said, and I got afraid. He was this Tibetan Lama, got afraid. Thank you. That's just human, right? Let's not glorify all this. And then he said, I thought, well, if, if the horse stumbles, because Rocky was a little nervous about it, um, maybe I should sit a little bit over in this side of the saddle so that if he falls, I can sort of bail and save myself. He said, so we were about to go there, and I shifted myself in the saddle, and then Rocky turned his head and looked at me, <laughs> like saying, dude, I thought we were in this together. <laughs> and he said, oh, I got it. And I shifted back in the center of the saddle. I said, all right, let, we can do this. And Rocky took it a little slow, and I was there with him, and we made it. This is really, so, so, so there's something about loving awareness and mindfulness that we're training that is both an intimacy with our experience or with others, um, not fixing, but seeing the way things are. And then with an open heart, when you see it clearly, as he did, then you can respond, say, oh yeah, let me shift back to the center of the saddle. Let's do this together. 
So it allows us to tune to ourselves and tune to another in a wise way. Now, there's all this stuff. Let's see how much. Oh, let's see where we go. Um, there's all this science research now on mindfulness that everybody knows. It's the big kind of thing. There was yoga, and now there's mindfulness, whatever. Um, and now there's starting to be a lot of research on compassion, which I'm very happy about. And I'm glad that they're researching compassion rather than metta and loving kindness, because love is such a confusing word in our culture. Everybody kind of gets compassion. You have to, at least somewhat, being caring, responding to others' concerns or compassion for yourself. But love is really rather complex in our minds. I mean, it's such a big thing. It's the birds and the bees and, you know... This, uh, the glorious awakening of spring that we're about to you know, live through, that we are living through here. It's the prime mover. It's the, you know, maybe it's like gravity love that we, we're pulled to one another um, because we remember our time in the womb when we were in another person's body or we remember being back in the Big Bang when we were all living together in that singularity. Then we sort of turned into starlight and congealed and who knew the earth turned into you it's kind of i mean no that's so mysterious you are you are spirit and starlight somehow congealed and on this particular planet the green leaves (laughs) that you see all around you do a magic thing of turning light into sugar i mean what an amazing thing let's turn light into sugar so that everybody can eat is that ever cool you know, so that's you. You live on sunlight, basically, that the plants and animals or whatever your diet is. Anyway, but there's all these different kinds of love. I love chocolate, you know. I love the warriors. I hope they win, you know, all these games, whatever. So there's that kind of love, right? There's businessman's love. I'll love you if you give me this and you can love me and I'll give you that back. And that's a fine kind of love. There's familial love, you know, for people in your family when it works. <laughs> There's brotherly and sisterly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, you know, of compadres, of caring for one another. There is, um, how, do you, how shall I call it, infatuation um, love. Oh, baby, oh, baby, I need you, I need you. You know, a million songs on the radio, teenage love, if you will, which is magnificent. It's really, it's an amazing thing. Um, There's platonic love. There's erotic love. And erotic, it's really an interesting thing because um, in lots of the Buddhist texts, um, which were descriptions of the Buddha teaching monks and nuns, there is a very strong teaching about the dangers of or the, the problems with sexuality and sensuality for renunciates. And so the body is seen, sexual desire and so forth, as something to get over or something not right. But it turns out that there are these other texts and teachings, not as many of them, but some of them, in which the Buddha says for householders, you, me, lay people, um, that is one of the pleasures of householders. And if there were not pleasure of this sort, people would not choose to be householders. And he goes on, happiness exists in household life. What is that happiness? Is it a satisfaction gained through the senses, 
you know, beautiful sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touches and connections with one another. These experiences are attractive, desirable, pleasant, appealing, and worthy. Experiences through the senses give the are the advantage of the household life, so you get to enjoy them. The happiness one derives from these benefits is indeed a happiness that one can learn to enjoy. So there are these there are these sort of mixed messages you get in these Buddhist teachings. One great meditation master we brought from Burma, Mahasi Sayadaw, somebody asked him about sex. And he said, mm, gross, base, and disgusting. That was his response. We were in our 20s and 30s then, and kind of, okay, that's what, you know. And then at the end of this long retreat, he came and he left. It was one of our three-month silent retreats. We had Dharma Follies which was sort of a time for the people who'd been silent for three months to express other parts of themselves and sing and dance and kind of whatever. And I remember there was a comic routine that Anita Sanders did, and she got up and she robed herself like she was Mahasi Saido, and she said, and now I would like to speak about something that is engrossing, basic, and worth discussing, which was sort of her mirror of gross, base, and disgusting. It was, no, it's engrossing, basic, and worth discussing. Um, but part of Eros, I mean, the thing about Eros as the, as the Greek gods, you know, or in India there are all these erotic, fantastic erotic deities and stories, is that it brings us closer to the gods. When we make love, there's um, there's pleasure and ecstasy, there's surrender from yourself, there's a sense of, you know, the petit mort, there's a, a dying in some way, an orgasm, and then you have a, um, an experience beyond yourself, there's a union, all of those things. Plus, which it's that mystery of getting back to where you came from. You know, it feels, it's, it's physical and basic in some way, but also it's so mysterious that that's woven into us. We have these bodies that are built around eros, among other things. And so there are all these different kinds of love. And then there's agape. There is metta in its deepest sense, which is love for no reason, which is just love. And I've seen it in the teachers and people I admire, you know, both the nobility and the love in Aung San Suu Kyi after 17 years of prison carrying so much love for her people, you know, or Gosananda, my friend and teacher who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, leading love walks back for people who lost everything and doing loving kindness as a practice through the killing fields to reclaim their land and their hearts. And I've spent a lot of time in these last years with Ramdas. Ramdas has this big altar in his house in Hawaii because he doesn't travel anymore. He's in the wheelchair as he has been for 16 years and he's 84. And there is, you know, the different Hindu gods. There's Krishna and Ram and Sita and Ganesh and so forth. And then, of course, there's Mother Mary and there's a beautiful picture of Jesus and Solomon and, you know, a page from the Quran on the mercy of Allah um, and then there's pictures of saints like Meher Baba and uh, um, Ananda Mayama, Indian saints and Mother Teresa. And so it's this magnificent, huge altar full of all these great people. And then on this altar, he always has a few political pictures. He had Dick Cheney for a while, 
John Boehner, I'm sure he's going to put, you know, Scalia on there. Um, and he says, if I'm to love, why should I make boundaries about my love? And why would I not want Dick Cheney to remember love of all people? Why wouldn't I want him to remember that? You know, so I do, he's part of my love practice. And Ramdas will sit there and say, I love everything. You know, I love Dick Cheney and Boehner and, you know, Anandama and um, Mother Mary and Kuan Yin and that chair over there and, you know, you and you and the wallpaper or you know, the tree outside. He did that for a while. And um, somebody who was a friend of ours, a filmmaker, was there and said, really, you love this dirty carpet? He said, oh, I do. I love everything. And then um, some weeks later, that friend sent him in a beautiful gold frame a little square of a dirty carpet and said, I put this on your altar next to all those, you know, holy people. Ramdas said, certainly I will, you know. Um, but there's something in these times of such political rancor and estrangement um, to be able to rest in the noble heart and in the heart of love anyway. It doesn't mean you don't act politically or do what you think is best from that place of love. When Richard Nixon was invited to go back to the White House um, during the Carter administration, there was a gathering and they brought the ex-presidents there. And when he came back to the White House, which is the first time after he'd been, um, you know, deposed, and if you can imagine the kind of shame of, the, uh, I think, the only president who was sort of kicked out of office for misconduct in U.S. history, um, the, the level of humiliation and shame that must have been, no matter what he did, um, and so he came in, and there were some of the other ex-presidents, and he stood alone by himself. Um, and then Jimmy Carter went over to him and shook his hand, kind of pulled him in and said, Mr. President, welcome home. And it was apparently a, a turning point in Nixon's life, a feeling like he wasn't a complete failure and that there was some healing that was possible. And, of course, Jimmy Carter is someone as a president who has used his ex-presidency as a Nobel laureate now in the most magnificent ways. Yes. So this is really what's possible for us. And the invitation of the Dharma is to remember that this is in you as well. You know, and you can practice it. Loving kindness, mindfulness, and... Uh, my dear friend Sharon Salzberg, colleague, who was practicing in Burma and, you know, doing her metta, may I be safe, may I be well, may I be happy, all the kind of phrases of loving kindness. She said it felt very dry and mechanical, but she kept doing it because the teacher said it would work sometime. And she said, I'm such a, you know, I'm, I'm physically kind of awkward and so forth. And she said, and one afternoon I'm doing my metta practice and I picked up this tray with a plate and a glass and so forth. And I dropped it, and they all smashed on the floor. And I heard my voice inside, you're such a klutz. I love you. And she said, oh, it's working. <laughs> <laughs> what you practice, what you practice, what seeds you plant, transform your heart. And then you can use it to move from estrangement 
or violence or the difficulties to begin to build bridges of love while you stay in your own dignity, your own nobility. Um, I mean, I like that St. Valentine's Day, it's got a kind of very complicated history, but in a sense, in the simplest way, here's the saint part that represents kind of the spiritual and then the erotic part of it, that it's actually very human, this love, and that those two are wedded together. I guess I'll tell you this story. Let's see if I have time. It might. Um, it's an African story. So there was a young man in East Africa where cattle are the are, are, are the form of wealth. Um, and he had some beautiful cow, cows, milk cows he had, which then w- were used to, to sell milk and so forth. And he found a clearing in this forest that no one else would use. It was the forest called Dukadukduk. It was very dark, and it was called that because that's the sound your heart made as you entered the forest because it was so dark and scary. But he was a young man, and, you know, young men like to do dangerous things. Is there anything dangerous to do around here? You know, let me try it. And so he went in the forest, and he found this beautiful clearing and with grass and everything, and he would bring his cows there. But he began to notice after a time that, the, that they weren't giving as much milk as they had before, like someone was stealing the milk. So he went at night. He left the cattle cows there at night and he went at night into Dukadukduk forest quietly and he rested among the trees and as he did after a while hiding there for some hours finally a beautiful young woman carrying a large bucket rode a moonbeam down from the sky and began milking his, his favorite cows So he thought, all right, this is who's taking my milk. Um, But she was also quite beautiful and charming, and you know how these stories go. (laughs) And after a few nights of secretly observing her, he set a kind of trap for her and caught this young woman, demanded to know who she was. She said she was a sky maiden, part of a tribe that lived in the sky, and that had no milk of their own. They had other things to eat, but they loved the earthly milk. And I love the different parts of this story, the dukaduk-duk, that anything that you do that's a little bit dangerous and connected with love and your heart goes, whoa-oh, you know, something's happening here. And I love the, you know, the fact that even that sky maidens want the taste of milk, the taste of something that's so immediate and, and, and uh, so earthly that brings its own kind of joy. And it was her job to bring the milk back up to the others, and she pleaded to be set free, and he said she would do anything, the young man asked, and he said, well, my condition is that you marry me. She looked at him. He was a nice-looking young man and had these beautiful cows, and so she agreed. She said, I have to return home for a few days, and then she came back for the wedding and carried a large box with her. said, I'll be your wife, We'll live together with great happiness. Um, but one thing I must ask of you, you must promise never to look inside this box. You know how these stories go, right? <laughs> ah. 
And for months they were happy together, but one day, while the new wife was out, his curiosity became so intense that he crept over to the box and opened it, and to his surprise, it had nothing inside. When she got home, she looked at his face and she knew. She said, you opened the box, you didn't you? Yes, said the young man, but it was empty. So what's so secret about an empty box? And the sky woman was devastated and a tear trickled down her cheeks. She said, I'm sorry, but I can't live with you any longer. And he said, why, why, what's so terrible about peeking into an empty box? I'm not leaving you because you opened the box, said the young woman. We all do that at times, right? I'm leaving because you said it was empty. It wasn't empty. It was full of sky, full of the light and air and smells of my parents' home. And when I went back to the sky village where I lived that last time, I filled the box with everything that was precious to me. And how can I be your wife when what is most precious to me is emptiness to you? You know, some of these stories don't work out quite the way you'd like them to, the happily other part. But there's something really profound about the story. I mean, I could t take a whole evening just to unpack the images of that story. Part of it is um, to respect that our love really requires that we respect one another. That true love is not a possessive love. I'm going to have what you have or look into what you have. There has to be actually a respect for what we agree to or who we are with one another. So that's a piece of... Love is not possessive. If it's possessive, then it's possessiveness, but it's different than love. And you'll notice your children don't like to be, you know, have you decide, cling to them how they should be. Your partners don't like it. Um, love is very different than that kind of attachment. So the Buddha says, this land is mine, these children are mine. These are the words of folly of a man who doesn't realize that even he isn't his. You don't even control your own thoughts very well, do you? You know, What are you going to possess? So love isn't about possession. But it is about making the space of love that can acknowledge and respect with a kind of caring connection. And it's mysterious then. You know, the emptiness of that box, because emptiness is so central to Buddhist teaching, that things are ephemeral, they arise and they pass away. Nothing can be possessed, including your own life eventually will end. That's the big mystery. And in Zen, you know, they use the poetic images of the blackbird singing in the dead of night, or the white crane standing in the snow. And those are the poems that speak about something ineffable, that's the pregnancy of emptiness. That box wasn't empty. It was full of possibility. It was full of sky and space and beauty, if we can see it. And eros and presence and loving awareness has as much as anything a kind of wonder in it and mystery and intimacy. Instead of possession, it sees the secret beauty of every being the nobility of every being and holds their pain with mercy and tenderness. And I'll probably talk more about him in another month or two, but most of you, many of you who knew him, 
um, know that Stephen Levine died um, some weeks ago. We'll do a big memorial here that people will be welcome to come to in May. Um, and his teaching was really about this kind of tenderness and mercy and so forth. He would say, simply touching a difficult memory with the slightest willingness to heal begins to soften the holding and tension around it. You know, if there's a single definition of healing, it's to enter with mercy and awareness those pains, mental and physical, from which we have withdrawn in judgment or fear or dismay. And so his whole work was really inviting this kind of intimacy, both with what's painful and also with what's beautiful, and getting people to learn forgiveness and getting people to learn to love in a deeper way. And more than anything, um, since he wrote and worked so often with people who were at the end of their lives, he would say, not to those who are dying, but to those around them. If you were going to die soon and had only one phone call you could make, who would you call and what would you say? And why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? We are both timeless beings of spirit and we are tender and vulnerable humans. We have survival in us. Every one of you is courageous. Every one of you has nobility. Courage beyond measure you have because you're still here. You've gone through so many things. And somehow when we sit in meditation, the invitation of nobility and dignity like the leadership that we start started with is to come back to this place of fertile emptiness, of spaciousness, of the pregnant silence that contend our own bodies and hearts and minds, that can sense that we live in both the immediacy of our life and in eternity. And then things start to take a different cast. You pick up a, the cobbled skin of an orange and smell it and you go, how mysterious that there's this globe of sweet sugar water with an orange flavor, you know, shipped to you from some orchard in Southern California or Florida. Or you pick up the tender golden skin of an apricot, you know, that's so fuzzy and soft and it's golden glow. And I mean, what an amazing planet we live on that has things like this. Or the plum blossoms that have come out, yeah? They're so delicate and the scent, and here they are. Hi, for your enjoyment, we're going to put plum blossoms on your planet. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And so as you train yourself in love, as you remember that you can carry dignity and integrity and generosity, um, that that nobility that the Buddha invites you to remember, O oh, nobly born, is there within you, you discover that wherever you are in life, no matter how terrible the circumstances, which will be on certain days, or how beautiful, that they're workable because your heart has in it more freedom and compassion than you could imagine. Oh, nobly born, this is your true nature. And the invitation of the meditation and the practices and trainings is to come back to this, to 
to feel it and strengthen it and know it. Yeah.